Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode on hitting the books is to dive for. How's it going? It's going good. It has been so long since we've talked and so long since like, oh my goodness. I know that, you know, probably to the listeners, it doesn't seem like it's been that long because we just had an episode come out last week. Um, But, you know, behind the scenes, we haven't recorded since I think before Christmas. So it's been really crazy. It's been a long time. (laughs) I know. Had to give ourselves a little break and also... You were in Bonaire, I was on a boat, so I was off the grid, so we, yeah. we had to get our, our diving time in, guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, speaking of boats, how was your trip? Tell, tell everyone where you went. It was amazing, and as soon as we got off the boat, I was like, nope, I want to get back on. Um, mm-hmm. So I did a three-day, two-night live aboard up in Cairns. Um, on the Great Barrier Reef, and we went out with Reef Encounter, which is one of the many live-aboard boats up there. Um, got to do 10 dives over three days, um, two snorkel sessions. It was beautiful. We went to four different reefs, and the way they set it up, you got to do a day dive, a night dive, and a sunrise dive on the same reef which I love because then you get to see the reef at all different stages during the day and night. So I was very happy. Thanks, you stayed at the same reef for like three dives. Um, I got to really get the hang of that reef and figure out where all the macro critters were and like see one side of it and then go to the other side. So I had a blast. And, and like go back to the same spot over and over. Be like, yeah. I saw a frogfish on this one coral head or whatever. Like, I'm gonna go back there tonight and try and get pictures. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, it was awesome. And the night dives, they like blast lights from the boat into the water, so it's mm. kind of like lit up fairly well, and it brings all the sharks in and all the trevally. And these trevally are huge. They're bigger than the ones we saw in Flower Garden Banks. And the sharks, there's uh, white tip reef sharks, black tip reef sharks, and just your normal gray reef sharks. And so they're like, they're not huge sharks, but they are swimming around the whole time and the lights are pretty. And you got trevally trying to eat anything that touches the light of your flashlight. And you got like the feather dusters crawling along the reef. It was it was amazing. And wow, that's awesome. Yeah, met some really cool people on the boat. We had a little gang. Some people, uh, one from Alberta, Canada, one from Boston, one from Germany. Dang. Met met another coral scientist on the boat who knows Ooh. my boss. So cool crazy we had a great time it was awesome and i miss it and i want to go back that's so cool um well that is amazing i love that for you and it's funny you're talking about big fish hunting by your lights and it's giving me really big bonaire Mm -hmm. vibes because anytime you go night diving there the tarpon hunt off your lights yes um, which is super intimidating but also super cool and I had, I was just in Bonaire, obviously, as you just said. Um, I went there in basically over the new year with my dad and my stepmom and with Lawrence. And I had obviously an amazing time as we are always talking about how amazing it is to dive in Bonaire. Um, I will say, sadly, that, it, and this is not to dissuade anyone from going there, um, but I was rather saddened by the state of the reef compared to years prior. Um, And that is just a result of, like, we've all been talking about all summer long, this crazy, insane bleaching event that's been going on in the Caribbean. Um, And also the last year, the recent arrival of stony coral tissue loss disease in Bonaire. 
Um, so that is, you know, between those two factors, the coral has really declined. Um, and I unfortunately have seen a lot of people on social media, on forums and things like that, talking about like, oh, is Bonaire, is Bonaire even worth going to anymore? Um, and I just do want to encourage people like not to shy away from reefs that have been damaged due to environmental things like environmental stressors, because A, that's getting ready to be far more widespread than the alternative. Um, but then also B, I think it is really important for people to see that, you know, like if you're a vacation diver and you oh, only yeah. go diving once a year and you always go to places that have beautiful, healthy coral reefs, then it's really hard to understand the, the case or the state or the plight of current coral reefs around the world. And so going somewhere that has, uh, experienced a recent decline in coral cover or coral, um, like tissue cover or whatever, for example, is like, it's a, it's a good thing to experience because I don't, I think a lot of people don't recognize or realize like what is a coral, what's a rock, what's an anemone, what's a sponge, but it's really apparent when you go somewhere, you know, last year in Bonaire and then you come back again the next year in Bonaire and the reef looks totally different, right? Um, so I, I would yeah. encourage people not to like reschedule their trips and stuff, like go see it. It's important if you care about this ecosystem, it's important that you see it because like we always say, uh, you are these ecosystems biggest advocates. Uh, you're the eyes on the reef. And if you decide not to look, then there's only so much that you can do about it. Uh, so yeah, just a little, a little, uh, shameless plug to go visit even your degraded reefs. And, and then if you're, you know, emotional about it, advocate for it. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And also along with that, it's a good way to support the businesses, the dive shops totally. uh, that are still located there. And yeah, they, they also need your support. So that's a good reason to go back to these places as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I did have some of the most insane dives while I was there. Um, and one of them I am going to wait and save for a fishtail down the line because um, – I think Lawrence, Lawrence and I went on the dive together and I think he's going to write a blog post about this experience. Yeah. Um, so I won't steal his thunder. I will, you know, when it comes out, I'll direct everybody to where you can go read about our insane dive. Um, but I will say that it involved some of like the single most crazy bioluminescence I've ever experienced in my entire life blew my absolute mind. And we were like shouting in the water like we we like put our faces in the water and then stuck our face above the water and just started screaming at each other like this it was crazy so you know two people with over 600 dives it it takes it takes something pretty cool to uh to get us that excited and we were we were stunned yeah oh my gosh i have a an interesting bioluminescence story from my trip too so we'll have to discuss on fishtails yes absolutely we will um and then the only other amazing thing that happened was i certified my dad and my stepmom in rescue diving so that was really fun yay go brian and tiff <laughs> Woo! our newest certified rescue divers um <laughs> um okay Cool. So I have our news piece this week. It is a little bit sad and kind of on the same topic of climate change that we were just talking about. So get ready for a downer before an amazing episode. So I don't feel too bad, guys. <laughs> um, oh, I just burped. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep it. No, just kidding. Blooper. Burp. Um... <laughs> Uh, so this episode, or no, no, so this week a article was published in The Guardian that was talking about the temperature of the oceans and how that is impacting some of the storms that we've seen in the 2023 season over here in the Atlantic. Um, and so it says that a new study was published in the Journal of Advances in Atmospheric Sciences. And it used temperature data collected by a range of instruments across the oceans to determine the heat content of the top 2,000 meters, which is a ton of water. Yeah. 
Um, and it says this is where most of the heat is absorbed beyond just the sea surface, which, you know, of course absorbs the most heat. Um, but water has an insane capacity to hold heat. And as a result, in 2023, an additional 15 zeta joules of heat was taken up by the oceans compared to 2022. And by comparison, they say this number, um, 15 zeta joules, humanity only uses about half of one zeta joule of energy per year to fuel the entire global economy. So like 30 times the entire global economy's heat every year. Um, and then... I'll finish the rest of it after. Okay. 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 That is insane. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to pause and restart my video so I know where that, or my audio, so I know where that ended. Okay. I'll do that too. Hello. I'm going to tell you the rest of my news piece. Are you ready? <laughs> Okay, um, so we, just to rebrief us, we talked about the ocean's hot, um, and it absorbed 15 zeta joules of energy. Um, so in a separate report by the Consortium of Global Water Monitor, or by the Consortium, oh, hold on, in a separate report by the consortium the global water monitor so gwm uh they found that some of the worst disasters of 2023 were likely due to uh unusually strong cyclones bringing extreme rainfall to places like mozambique and malawi and myanmar greece libya new zealand and australia um and professor albert van deek of gwm said that we saw cyclones behave in unexpected and deadly ways and the longest lived cyclone ever recorded battered southeastern africa for weeks warmer sea temperatures fueled those freak behaviors he said and we can expect to see more of these extreme events going forward yeah that is crazy and just the you mentioned the 15 zeta joules of heat. That is insane to wrap your head around. I know. Crazy. The ocean is so big and water has such a high capacity for absorbing heat. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that we all, we are, are buffered, you know, like our experience yeah. of climate change is significantly buffered compared to what it would be if we were on a planet with less water. So um, the ocean can only can only absorb so much and can only buffer so far, yeah. but yeah, grateful to have a big old blue 71% right now. Yeah, it's definitely reaching its capacity though, so humans need to step it up. Yeah, it'll it'll be fascinating nonetheless to see <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> sure. So we have some very special guests on our podcast today. Um, I know we usually only have one guest, but today we have two, which is extra exciting. So without further ado, we will let our special guests introduce themselves, give their name, pronouns, where they're from, and where they live now. Well, I'm, I'm Ned Deloach, and uh, Ned is what uh, I've always been called, so that will work. Uh, I am originally from um, West Texas. I went to college at Texas Tech. And as soon as uh, I left college, I came to Florida to dive. And we are in Jacksonville, Florida right now. And that's been our home for about 45 years. And I'm Anna Deloach. My pronouns, she, her. And um, I was born in Japan, uh, spent a few years here in the States because my dad's from Jacksonville. And uh, then we moved back to Japan, where I spent a lot of my formative years, and then moved back to the States in the late 60s. And Jacksonville's been my, um, my home ever since. So what is it that drew you guys to the water initially? Well, it wasn't much diving in, in Texas, but uh, there, um, so uh, after college, uh, uh, I, I moved to Florida to dive, and uh, 
been diving ever since. Um, when I first moved to Florida, being in North Florida, if you don't know the uh, geography of Jacksonville, it's almost in Georgia and a little, uh, we're a good ways from the clear water. Uh, we've got good diving off of Jacksonville, but it's kind of deep and rough and uh, mainly spear fishing. Uh, but what we did have and do have is uh, we're about 90 miles from uh, the Suwannee River and the aquifer system with all the springs and sinkholes. Um, so when I moved, I was teaching school here in Jacksonville and uh, that was a, a two hour drive. So it uh, allowed us to uh, the freedom of going diving quite regularly, even during the week. Uh, we'd get off school in the afternoon, uh, drive out and cave diving you can do at night as well as in the daytime <laughs> because there's no light. And I was very, very fortunate. That was uh, when uh, um, the cave diving community was coming together and, uh, oh, let's see, that was uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I fell in with the real pioneers uh, of cave diving. It was one of the lucks of my life. And uh, a great bunch of people, uh, all the mixed gases and things we use, and so much that recreational diving uh, uses today actually generated from that cave dive community. And uh, I learned really quickly that uh, I wasn't of their caliber. These guys, these guys verged on genius and uh, they were so dedicated and I was right there. But uh, after uh, a few dives with them, I, I realized uh, uh, that it wasn't quite my thing, but I wanted to keep doing it. Fortunately, I had talents they needed, uh, such as writing and publishing and such. And so for 20 years, oh, nice. I was able to uh, travel with them, make some, uh, some great dives with them. And uh, it, it was a, a delightful time in my life. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I see, I see Anna reminding you that not only were you a writer and a publisher, yeah, you were a photographer. I mean, he, he also took a lot of... <laughs> oh, yeah. Can't forget that. <laughs> now, that, 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 that's true. And just like they were pioneering uh, how to get deeper and, and further in the caves, uh, I was figuring out uh, how to do cave photography. And uh, that, that was a lot of fun. And you, the caves were, the water was, uh, visibility is just so astounding. And the limestone for the most part is as quite light and reflects the light. So there were a lot of positive things to that. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that the photography and, and but mainly I also uh, wrote about their history during those times for magazines for them and kept the public informed. And that was, and then um, I, I helped with the educational process. That's so cool. Wow. I, I feel like you guys have probably both lived entire lives that I don't even know about. Like the things, of course, that I know you for are things that I'm sure lots of people who are our listeners know you for, uh, which is things like your ID books that we um, have not even jumped into yet. But it's it's so cool to hear about like kind of the life outside of that as well. I, I wouldn't have even thought of I wouldn't have assumed that you were cave diving as well. So that's really, really cool. Um, Anna, when did you get dive certified? Like what did that journey look like for you? Well, I um, my mother was terrified of the water, but fortunately, she made sure that we learned how to swim. So so we knew how to swim. But there was just no tradition of going to the ocean or doing anything, uh, you know, with my parents. So I, it wasn't even on my radar. But my origin story for diving, um, it, it, it's, um, I, had fr I had a friend who had a, a big sport fishing boat. And here off Jacksonville, this little group of friends would, they would dive. And then in between diving, they would uh, do a surface interval and fish. So I wasn't a diver. I wasn't a fisherman but I would go out on the boat just to have a day out on the ocean with them. And 
Um, finally, the, the guy who owned the boat one day said, you know, don't you even want to try this? And I was like, no, no, I'm afraid of the ocean. And I, I'm just out here to enjoy the, the water and the sun. And he said, listen, put my mask on and hang on the back of the ladder and just put your face in the water and look down there when the divers jump in, just watch them jump in. So I got on the ladder, put the mask on, stuck my face in the water and we're 20 miles offshore Jacksonville. The wreck is 120 feet down. And there's probably, there were hundreds of barracuda right under the boat. And I almost came out, I'm in one leap back onto the boat. Uh, but they, everybody laughed at me and said, get back in there. And so I put my face back in the water the divers, there were three divers on the boat. They jumped in and I watched as they descended these hundreds of barracuda in this big like swirl just followed them down and disappeared into the blue. And I can, I can still see it. It was so beautiful. Got off the boat that afternoon, went down to the dive shop and signed up for scuba lessons. So I got certified when I was 35. So I was pretty late coming into the game. That was in the 80s. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. And that's amazing that you still can like pinpoint and remember that exact moment. Oh, I, I just remember it because it was just so beautiful. And, uh, you know, that big swirling school following the divers down. It's mm -hmm. just, it's, it's, it's still, it's a memory that endures to this day. Well, um, when I moved uh, to Florida, I was teaching high school and I, I did that for um, a number of years, about 20 years. Um, and so, uh, I, one of the good things about teaching, um, was that you got the summer off and, uh, those two months were invaluable because, uh, that gave me a, a chance to do some traveling. And so I, uh, found that I could get my pay, uh, way paid to these expensive destinations, uh, by uh, some dive magazines they would send you on what we call destination pieces. Uh, so for a number of years, uh, that, that's what I did. And uh, that, that kept me diving. And of course, at home here in Jacksonville, uh, quite a bit of cave diving. That was, uh, there were uh, uh, times when uh, we would be diving uh, six, seven uh, times a week and other times we would go a month or so and not dive. It depended on the project, but stayed underwater as much as I possibly could. And then you started Diving Guide to Underwater Florida. Okay, yes. And then <laughs> uh, when I moved to Florida, <laughs> there, it, it was so different. Now, I, I'm going to be 80 uh, next month, so I've got this long career and so uh, Moved to Florida, I was, uh, uh, like I said, just out of college, about 23, 24, and I got here, and one of the things, there was no guidance to where to go diving. Uh, you know, talk, people uh, hear about me diving so long, and they say, oh, you're in the good old days of diving. Well, in a lot of ways, they were good, but they also, it was tough. Uh, there were no uh, very, very few charter boats to take you out. Uh, even the springs, uh, finding those spring, uh, springs in the, in the woods and locations to go diving or people to go diving with. Um, but uh, the dive community had really uh, started at that time, so I, I did fall in with those guys, as I was saying. Uh, but... I had the idea, I will write a diving guide to Florida, which I did, and the first one was published, a little 48-page guide called Diving and Recreational Guide to Florida Springs, and that was in 71. And uh, did everything myself, you know, drew the maps and, and uh, wrote the dialogue, uh, financed it, took it down, and then traveled around to the few dive shops there were and, and peddled them. Well, it took off and did uh, quite well. And over the years, uh, let's see, in the late 70s, I uh, wrote a guide to the Florida Keys and combined them into what was called the Diving Guide to Underwater Florida. And uh, every year it would grow inside our I would reprint about every three and a half years, something like that. And uh, we went through a 
11 editions of wow. it. So that uh, put a that put a jingle in my pocket to, to help me go diving more. All that money was spent on what I was doing, but really loving it. So uh, that really kept me uh, uh, busy during all those years. Is a uh... Is 11 editions what's to come for the Caribbean Reef ID books? Are we going to get 11 editions out of those? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, these uh, dive books, uh, start about that. Um, a friend uh, introduced me to a gentleman named Paul Human in the mid-80s. And uh, Paul was really a pioneer uh, he's my partner today and been my partner uh, uh, since uh, the late 80s. Uh, but he, Paul started the first liveaboard uh, dive boat in the Caribbean called the Care, uh, Cayman Diver. And boy, it was kind of a crude thing and, and such. I remember seeing advertisements for it in dive magazines. I couldn't, on a teacher's salary, I couldn't think of going. But I had a, a friend that went down there, and uh, he talked to Paul, and uh, he said, you guys need to get together. You need to meet this guy. So Paul, in uh, 80, uh, sold the Cayman Diver, and he started... Uh, 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 leading dive tours, C&C uh, travel to the Galapagos Islands, and that's what he was kind of doing for a living, but he wanted to publish books. And uh, I had Underwater Florida, and it was going really well uh, by that time, and uh, so we decided to, to join forces, because one of the smart, many of the uh, the smart things Paul did is when he was on the Cayman Diver uh, diving five, six days a week, um, he realized that his customers coming aboard didn't know anything about the marine life. And so he said, well, boy, it would be a really asset if I could learn more about it. So he had uh, a friend bring all the uh, scientific tomes down because that's all there was at the time, uh, which were, were very good books, uh, but black and white drawings for the most part. And uh, the, the biggest problem with them is they were in... in uh, environmental, uh, evolu excuse me, evolutionary order. Uh, all the fishes were listed. And uh, it, so for a layman like myself trying to look at the fish and going through there, it, it was really tough stuff. Uh, so Paul and I decided to do uh, a, the first Caribbean reef uh, uh, fish book. And uh, Luckily for Paul, he uh, had a real catalog of pictures because he hadn't wasted his dive, uh, time just uh, uh, diving and enjoying his friends in the Cayman Island. But every day he took pictures of fish. And he used uh, these, these books that the friend bought him and did the best he could. And uh, when uh, in the late 80s, uh, I was asked to edit a dive magazine uh, called Ocean Realm, uh, and it came out in, in the mid-80s, and um, at that time I was single, but I had custody of two kids, I was teaching school, doing underwater Florida, busy, 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 but boy, you had to jump at that opportunity, so I did, uh, but it was a little over my head, so I called Paul uh, after a, a friend introduced me to him, and um, so we decided to uh, uh, do the first uh, marine life guide with photographs in it. And uh, that's how all of that started. Uh, but uh, as you can imagine, Paul did most of his diving in Cayman Island, so he was thinking the the book was very comprehensive, and it was at the time. Uh, we had about 187 species, something like that, which was really good. So anyway, I really got in. I, I, my part was putting the book together, laying it out, 
figuring out how it worked. And let's go back to the scientific books. Uh, they were a little bit over the head and it was, it was hard to understand them and, and so forth. But being a school teacher, I realized people learned differently. So how can we take these around 400 fish that you possibly could see in the Caymans, I mean, in, in the Caribbean, not only the Caymans, but uh, uh, throughout the uh, uh, Caribbean. And uh, so we wanted to make it simpler. And that's uh, how we came up with, uh, I guess, notorious 12 ID uh, chapters in the book. Uh, we tried to put uh, fish together that had the same color, looked alike, uh, and um, and that's how we started it out. And it was kind of a goofy process, but it rather worked well because we're still using it to this day. Yeah, it is an excellent guide. I love <laughs> the 12 funny chapter names or whatever, but um, I mean, I teach fish ID to your book like I teach it out of the book basically all the time where you know people come to me knowing very little about fish in general and I say okay like these are your groups is it a disc shape is it an odd shaped bottom <laughs> dweller is it you know like all of these different descriptors that make sense to people to people who mm -hmm. aren't evolutionary biologists um and yeah, I love it. I love that things that look similar are next to each other. So you can go back and forth and say, oh, this one has a dot on its chin. It must yeah, be exactly. whatever fish. Um, so yeah, act like I'm, I feel like I'm just, I don't know, hyping you up, but I really love, <laughs> I really love the way these books are written. I, I love them. I have, uh, recommended them to probably more people than I can count and, as you guys might remember, I actually have a signed copy of your Coral ID book um, that Lawrence got signed for me on the boat one day, and I think I cried when I received it, so. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Before, yeah. before it gets away from me, though, I want to make sure that I go back and ask Anna. I want to hear about your career as well. Um, I've, I could talk about this book forever and go down a rabbit hole, but I want to make sure I don't forget, uh, to kind of ask you the same question. Talk to me about your career, what, what that looked like for you. Well, I, my, uh, my formal degree is in computer science. So I was a mainframe, uh, computer, uh, programmer. Uh, I've installed and modified mainframe computer operating systems. So, um, so that, that was my uh, first career. And then, uh, like I said, I got certified to dive and then the whole world changed because I went from, you know, when you're working in a, on an operating system in a mainframe uh, computer room, uh, it, it was like a 24 seven job often and, you know, lots of weekends and all. But when I learned to dive, it was like I had a whole new focus. Um, so I, I, I um, joined the reef research team here in Jacksonville and started counting fish and learning how to survey reefs and all that fun stuff and uh, ended up getting uh, becoming a dive instructor. So I just, that, that whole different trajectory there. And, uh, and that's actually, we knew each other from the dive community here in Jacksonville, but that's how I kind of came on the scene. Uh, and Ned will tell you a little bit about reef too, but uh, when I went on the first reef field survey in 1993, um, uh, that's how I kind of got introduced to reef and ended up in, in this world. Yeah. Reef in itself is, as another world and, uh, a, a big part of, uh, part our, of our career life. and it's still going. Uh, anyway, let me get back to the, the book and, uh, and Paul, well, we story, decided, yeah. uh, uh, after, the book came out, uh, I started seriously fish IDing myself, and uh, the, the one of the places, the closest clear water to Jacksonville in those times was uh, Bimini in the Bahamas, and there happened to be a scuba operation uh, there called Scuba Bimini, and Anna and her former husband uh, ran that uh, operation, and uh, Anna was buying the books and selling them to her customers and so much and so forth. And um, so she said, well, come down and dive with us uh, anytime we got a place on the boat. 
so uh, that's what I started doing. But what I immediately realized is that the book wasn't as comprehensive as Paul and I had really thought, but because like Paul concentrated his photography in the Cayman Islands and uh, these populations uh, differ from island to island and uh, uh, we were seeing a lot of uh, new fish and so the first book came out, the uh, Caribbean fish book came out in 89 at Dima and Orlando and um, um, again, Paul was living off his credit card about that time, and uh, I was still uh, teaching school, and so uh, we, we wanted to uh, put this book together, but one thing I learned from Underwater Florida is in book publishing, middlemen get much of the profit, and publishing houses get much of the profit, and duly so. Um, but uh, that wasn't going to work. So what I decided to do with Underwater Florida back in the 70s is start my own company and not only write it, publish it, but distribute it and, and do everything. And so uh, I could make uh, more income. And so um, Paul and I, um, he came in and joined uh, New World Publications with me. And um, so anyway, I, st I started diving in uh, Bimini and seeing all these new fish. And when we went to uh, uh, Orlando, we introduced it there. We, I think it cost about $100,000 to put the first book out, something like that. And, and, and uh, that was a big gulp uh, to put out that much money. We kind of knew they would sell. It's how fast they would sell. And we found out how fast they sold at that first Dima show. They were literally wet off the press. And fortunately, they were printed in Orlando. We sold uh, the first five or 600 books uh, within the first day. And the people at the printing plant were actually bringing us books. <laughs> and uh, it really was a financial success too uh, at that time. Um, but back to Bimini, and we were really uh, enjoying uh, our success and, and everything, but uh, I realized that, you know, uh, uh, we need to, uh, to expand the book. One book won't do. We've got to keep, like I built Underwater Florida, uh, more information coming out. Uh, so that was the luck of my life because that, for the last 35 years, has kept me underwater about four months out of the year traveling around. We have nine of these books now, and they are always just a work in progress. Uh, we still know about a nickel's worth about all of, of this, and there's so much discovery out there. Uh, and so that has really been joyous. And uh, so Anna and I were married in uh, the mid-90s, and uh, she quit her job, and uh, we uh, decided to do this together. And so uh, for all these 30 years that we've been together, uh, uh, we're a real team, and uh, it's, it's been just so much luck and so much fun. Tell them how Reef started. <laughs> okay. Uh, we had mentioned uh, a Reef uh, a minute ago. Uh, reef is a Reef Environmental Education Foundation. Like I said, when we started, Paul and I thought it was like all natural histories out there, insects, birds, whatever. Scientists had done so much study and knew everything. Uh, well, that wasn't the so underwater. If you think about it, it's just been really in, in my generation uh, that humans could freely swim with the fishes. So, so much of the knowledge that was in these scientific books, uh, people had never actually seen the fish in their natural habitats. Um, uh, they 
caught fish, they dredged fish, they washed ashore, all the way back to Aristotle, they'd been documenting fish. Uh, but what happened is they could only get to so many fish that way. And so when scuba came along, it freed us up to go underwater. And so that is when we realized there was just an explosion of life down there uh, to, to document. And so that's what, that's what we set about doing. And so I got the idea right after the first book came out and we realized how little was known about it. For instance, uh, the distribution of these fish. Uh, where uh, where the, uh, the populations uh, spread and such like that. Um, we would ask the scientists and often they didn't know. So actually we uh, kind of copied birding from the Audubon Society, uh, Carnell Bird Feeders pro uh, Project and so, and they had so many volunteers collecting information uh, that we just kind of cannibalized them and said, what if we got divers and we could train divers? that could go out and when they dive all over the Caribbean, they could keep uh, population records of what they saw. And uh, that's where a reef got started. And so um, in 93, we uh, uh, finally put that together and uh, we had our first uh, uh, reef survey, field survey in Key Largo, Florida and uh, we had about uh, 14 people come and sign up and it was just everything worked really well. Our problem was what are we going to do with all of this data? And uh, the old term was to put it in a shoebox and never <laughs> look at it again. And we were, we didn't want that to happen. And uh, so we wanted some way to use the data uh, so what we started doing is people would go on the dive and uh, put down what they saw and the relative abundance of what they saw. And then we devised a scan form, just like you would take the old test and have to bubble it in. And so we made a, a fish scan form. And uh, about that time, the Nature Conservancy uh, heard about us, uh, the grapevine, and they said, well, listen, uh, we think you guys are really on to something. And they gave us some seed money. And that seed money is what uh, uh, got the scan forms printed and the computer program uh, to read it. And the University of Miami, Rosenstiel was lucky. Uh, we were uh, very fortunate. Uh, uh, they would process the data. So we started processing, being able to read this data right off. And of course, it, it's grown as computer power has grown. And uh, Reef is still, still here and uh, doing quite well. And we have Oh, uh, what, about 30,000 people that are members and about 12,000 active surveyors out there. And through the 30 years that uh, we've been around at Reef, uh, we've grown the largest visual fish uh, population database in the world. And uh, it's used extensively and we've now spread from the Caribbean all the way around the equator. Uh, uh, with groups and uh, training groups uh, around the world. So the um, so right now we're about to hit three hundred thousand surveys in the wow. database. So that's a, yeah, that's a lot of divers and snorkelers in the water uh, around the world surveying fish. So that's the the flagship program. The, our flagship program is still the Volunteer Fish Survey Project. That was the uh, the heart of of Reef when uh, Ned and Paul uh, founded it. Um, but I, I have to mention a couple of other programs that we have because, you know, we've been around 30 years now and we have quite a history and a lot of people think that we're just out there counting fish, but we have a lot of other really cool uh, projects. We have the um, Group of Moon Project, which has been going since, I think, 2002. And uh, that's a collaboration between um, Reef and uh, 
And Haley, you're nodding, so I think oh, you, you're probably I'm familiar with little, little Cayman. <laughs> yes, I love <laughs> so it. So the Grouper Moon, yeah, the Grouper Moon Project is a wonderful collaboration with the Cayman Islands Department of Environment, and also Scripps um, Scripps in uh, Institution of um, Institution of Oceanography and also uh, Oregon State. And so they've done all kinds of cool science over the past 20 years, and um, the um, a lot of cutting edge research, um, the takeaway from all of it. And, you know, you can go on reef.org and look at Grouper Moon Project up. It's just so fabulous, all the good work they've done. But the takeaway is that when that program started, it started from an, an aggregation of Nassau grouper uh, that were being overfished. It had just been discovered off of um, uh, Little Cayman and was being overfished that year. And from that, that we had a reef surveyors were there surveying fish at the time, so they were there and observing all this going on. But um, over the years now, that the spawning aggregations now are being protected um, in the Cayman Islands, and that original aggregation that had had been fished down to like a thousand fish is now up. I think last year was over eight thousand wow. just in that aggregation alone. So, yeah, so it's a wonderful project, and then. The other, pro, the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, education, because education is in our name, Brief Environmental Education. And um, we have some really talented professional educators on our staff now. And um, they, they run our uh, oceans, um, uh, Ocean Explorers program, which is, you know, we educate people from, at all ages, from kids up to seniors um, on ocean conservation. And then we also have a really wonderful um, ocean resource program for professional educators, and that's all free. So, um, so Reef wears many hats in the conservation world now. And um, having been around 30 years, we have you know quite a track record and still going strong. So, uh, so we're really proud of that. And um, Ned and I still serve on the board of, of Reef, so we're still involved there. And another uh, uh, project that we got involved in and is still involved in is is when the red lionfish invasion mm. of the Caribbean uh, took place. Uh, we were looking for um, uh, fish that lived in their natural habitat, but another thing that we were assigned, uh, a project that we were assigned, is to look for uh, invasive species. Uh, you've already got these volunteers down there looking for your home fish. If you see something odd, please report it. <clears throat> so we started this invasive species project and uh, keeping tabulation of these. And what we would do is when we would uh, 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 see a fish that wasn't supposed to be there in our waters, uh, usually there were releases from aquarists and such that... Uh, uh, and we didn't want them to set up populations, um, we would actually uh, join with a different aquarium. So around the state, we would go out and capture them and take them out of the, that habitat. Well, the lionfish was a different thing. Um, these guys actually set up breeding populations um, in the early part of the century and their population exploded over here and we didn't know what to do so the first thing was find out and get some tabulations on what is happening and so uh, we started uh, uh, studying the lionfish program too. Um, so one question we like to ask is, what is a challenge you faced in the field during your career? And tell us about how you overcame it. So someone who's going through maybe a similar thing in their career can learn from that. I, I guess I kind of answered that earlier because the challenge that we had was learning that um, we couldn't jump all over. You know, I, I think in the mid-90s, I'd still I'd only been diving maybe seven or eight years at that point and I wanted to go everywhere and see everything and so our challenge if we were going to when Ned said we really should work on this behavior book was was to figure out how we were going to do that so it was a challenge not to want to go chase the eagle rays down you know down the beach and instead stay over here and work on the self in blennies I actually I have some footage somewhere yeah. that's really funny it's um 
Ned was laying in the sand waiting for the sailfin blennies to jump so he could get the right shot because, you know, they're displaying for the females. And there are three eagle rays swimming in a circle in, around his bubbles over his head. Yeah. He, and I, I had video of it somewhere. I should try to find that. But because uh, he, 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 I was tapping for him to look up and he never looked up. He was, you know, focused on the sailfins. So, but anyway, I think the challenge that we had early on was um, figuring out what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And then coming to terms, the solution to the challenge was that we just said, look, we're going to have to find a place where we can sit, dive the same dive, um, you know, every day. Uh, we had friends who would come when we lived in Bimini, who'd come, well, we welcomed everybody, friends, family, everybody to come visit while we were there. But we'd tell them, we're going to go to the same dive site every afternoon. This week we're working on this. And so we're going to go and, uh, you know, so, that, oh yeah, we'll go. We're happy to go. But after about three days of diving on the same dive site, they'd go down the road and sign up with the local dive shop and go diving with them. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, so our challenge back then was um, yep. was figuring out how we were going to do the behavior <laughs> book. And then our solution to it was just we're going to sit in one place and and, uh, and whatever the fish we were yeah. working on that month, just work on that. Cool. After all of your years okay. of experience in boating and shore diving and boat diving and all of the crazy cave diving... We have to ask the hard-hitting question, what is the best dive snack? <laughs> um, Anna is a wonderful, fabulous uh, uh, baker, and uh, she is known far and wide for the uh, cookies that she, she brings aboard the boat. So uh, that uh, is far and away our, our favorite, and everybody awesome. else's too. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I love awesome. to bake, so I, I bake a lot of cookies, and uh, so we, I always bring a bin of cookies. Although I have to say that I am addicted to Linda Ionello's husband. I've Bob, had them. His brownies, you know, they're always whenever we do a dive with. <laughs> you had them, right? Right. So shout out to Bob because whenever we're down there diving with them, um, I'm waiting for Linda to bring. Yeah, I've definitely yes. brownies. Every time I go on a blackwater dive, yeah. I'm waiting for the brownies. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 That's great. Um, one question I really want to ask is, I know you've said before that the blenny is kind of your poster fish, um, but after all of your diving, fish photography, what is both of yours favorite marine organism to see underwater? Well, that's a question we get regularly and it's a good question, but <laughs> let's preface it a little bit different. Um, when you ask a diver and somebody that's a naturalist and into the animals, don't ask them their favorite animal ask them one of their favorite animals. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is it's just so many that you, you ask a diver that just got back, well, what was the favorite thing you saw? And it takes a minute, but you ask them one of the favorite because there's probably a dozen that were favorites. And, yeah. and I, yeah. I, I know the tendency to have favorites and we do, but they change with time. Uh, usually it's what we're working on oh, right yeah. now. We are yep. so into these animals that we're working on. I just, that's our conscious. That is our favorite. And uh, uh, for instance, uh, over in Indonesia, uh, getting these little coral gobies that uh, live down in the Acropora yeah. coral in the shallow water. Uh, they're just in, in a jungle of coral down there and it really a photographic uh, uh, challenge. Um, and uh, But uh, we worked with them long enough to learn their nature and so forth. But when we were working with those, I, that was the best animal in the world. And then when we started shooting flasher ass, uh, that was our favorite animal. That was the best animal. So uh, on and on, M many, many favorites as uh, most uh, divers have. So Blennies as a group are still my favorites. So. 
because they have so much yeah. personality. They're, they're, you know, they're they're so animated and I know. have so much personality. And the, so it's still my favorite group, fishes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I definitely relate to that. Every time we ask someone, they're like, okay, I have three. I guess I'll pick one for today. Or with, with yeah. us, it's always like, what organism are we studying right now for a project? That's my new, my new mm-hmm. favorite coral, my new favorite fish. So constantly changing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys have a favorite dive story? Like a favorite dive that you've ever been on? I, one I of know your that... favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of your favorites. Of course. <laughs> we have one of our favorites. <laughs> but I'm sure there's, I know there's not a favorite because well, I... I don't even have a favorite and I've got probably a tenth of the dives that you do. So, but do you have like any really incredible stories that you could share with us and our listeners? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just I have yeah. a, I have one that still sticks with me, and I think I sent you the picture. But I had this cuttlefish touching me, and uh, we were I I think I sent it to you. I'm not sure. If not, I can send it. But it's um, we were on a muck dive in Lembe, and we were fairly deep, and we were on a site that isn't one of the more popular sites. And Ned was down on the bottom shooting a shrimp goby or something, and I swam by him, and there was a cuttlefish like a big broad club cuttlefish right next to him, like watching him. And I thought, oh, it's it's probably going to try to eat whatever Ned's trying to shoot. And so he got up and moved on, and the cuttlefish followed him. So this whole dive, no matter where Ned would go, the cuttlefish would follow him and just, like, land right next to him. So I went over to it, and I showed him. And so he's taking pictures of it. And I put my camera down and put my hand out, and the cuttlefish came over and was feeling me. And that's the, I, it's just like my Barracuda story. It's one of these things that I will never forget because usually, you know, fish and and invertebrates are usually fleeing from you if you're getting too close. And this one actually was following us around and then actually touched me and it it was so silky and soft and Ned got a picture of it. So that still ranks way up there as one of my favorite marine life encounters to actually have the cuttlefish come touch me. No, one of them there. I just pulled up that picture. It is so cute. It's really amazing. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm amazed. Well, the, back to, we've had so many wonderful experiences at everyone that dives and snorkels have. And, uh, but, uh, to, to preface it, our books, I use our books. I mean, I don't know all the fish in our books. Uh, and you know, you in the Caribbean, there's probably 500 fishes that you can see if you travel about and you've got eagle eyes and so forth. And, and then you go over to uh, the Asian Pacific, then uh, that multiplies by about four or five possible. There's so much. Uh, but I think of our books, uh, not only as a catalog of all of this variety underwater, but I think of them as dream books. And not all the pictures have been ours. We've had a lot of underwater ph- photographers and scientists uh, collaborate with us and uh, are very generous with their photographs they use. So there's a lot we haven't seen. So I'm constantly going, oh, I want to see this. I haven't seen that yet or so forth. Well, one of them, when we got over in the Asian Pacific and in, in, in the 90s and first dived over there, um, one animal that just stuck out that I just wanted to see was called a hairy octopus. Well, this guy is not much bigger than the end of your thumb, and it is a master of illusion. Uh, why it's called a hairy octopus is not only do its chromatophores allow it to blend into the background, but its skin folds and flaps actually can uh, form themselves to look like the background. And in doing that, one of the things uh, they do is they want to look like algae that they frequently hide in. And the other thing they know to do is when they see a diver or danger, they get still and they form their chromatophores to meld into the background and then these skin flaps 
And that's why these little guys are called hairy octopus. Uh, we love natural selection and the complexity of life, and this kind of epitomized it. So five years we were doing other things, but we were always, always looking for the hairy octopus. And uh, like a lot of animals, they're not always on the bottom. A lot of them spend the majority of their life in the pelagic and only settle to reproduce. And the hairy octopus is like that. So wherever we would go, I would ask the dive guides. Uh, by the way, we love the dive guides in the Asia Pacific. That, to help you out. There's nothing like local knowledge. But I would always ask them, have you seen a hairy octopus? Oh, well, yeah, a few years ago, or this, that, or the other. But, uh, uh, well, if you see one, let me know. So we were in Limbe, and it was uh, five years into our diving. And um, I was on the bottom. We had our own guide, Johan, uh, at that time with us. And he had just found a blue ring octopus, which is also a, a great animal, uh, but I had seen others, but I was working it and working the behavior. And uh, I, it was really a charismatic little animal and I was into it. So Johan came over and he motioned for me to come. And uh, I, I shook my head and pointed to the little blue ring and I could see him thinking and he tried again and I said, no, no, I'm staying here. And all of a sudden he pointed to his hair. I was after him <laughs> like yeah, a bullet. <laughs> and so he swam about, it must have been about uh, uh, 20 yards away from where we were. And he had put his dive stick in the ground that it, uh, into the sand to, to mark it. We got there and Johan could not find it. These guys are just magicians. And he looked and it looked and I kind of stayed back and uh, he couldn't find it and he couldn't find it. It must have taken him five minutes. It was on the same rock and he finally found it. And I just can't describe the joy of seeing uh, something like that that you've been wanting to see so long and it finally turns up for you. And it was every bit as wonderful as I would imagined it. And it put on quite a show for us, uh, moving to the different habitats and its body would form uh, uh, constantly to the background. So that was really an exciting experience that I'll never forget. That's amazing. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so exciting. Ugh. My first thought was, oh my gosh, he's gonna he's gonna forget where the octopus is. I was like, if I had to swim twenty yards, I wouldn't remember. And then you said that he, he stuck his put his mud stick in. Yeah. Yeah. After all of this time, what keeps you coming back to the water? we've just scratched the surface. I mean, there is so much to discover uh, uh, still. And uh, and like I say, it's just every time I go in the water, it's a joy of possibilities. I know there's a good chance I, after having thousands of dives and a lot of hours under my belt, uh, I'm going to be startled with something, some new life form that maybe I've never even heard of or uh, thought of before. Yeah, it, it's just the curiosity and the, um, just like Ned said, the thrill of discovery. And, and I don't mean something new to science. I mean, this personal discovery that something I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know, like Ned said, that we're going to jump in and probably see something new for us and that's what keeps me going thank you guys so much for coming on the episode tonight we have thoroughly enjoyed this interview and i know that all of our friends and listeners are so excited to hear from you guys um yeah thank you so much for for being here and taking time to talk to us tonight. well certainly our pleasure yeah, thank you this has been amazing yeah it's our pleasure and we really you know we just we love diving and it's just uh you know, so very excited to uh, to uh, share it with your with your listeners. And we really appreciate what you're doing too, uh, yes. spreading the message about the joy of the underwater world. Thank you. That means a lot. Oh, thank you guys. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fishtails episodes. Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. So, you, you know, week. if you listen to Bye. the end of each episode, you get a fish fact. And this week's fish fact is brought to you by the Reef Fish Behavior Book that Ned and Anna talked about throughout this episode. Uh, this week's fish fact is that simothoid isopods are quite particular about which species they infest and the exact location on the fish where they attach. Uh, you can go find page 116 of their Reef Fish Behavior book to read more about that.